Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to be over in John chapter 19, verse 16. Uh, John 19, verse 16, or you can follow along on the Version Bible app this morning. And uh, while you're uh, finding your way over to John 19, uh, we are continuing this morning our road to Easter. And uh, we started this journey by uh, talking about the road through Jerusalem. And we call it the uh, triumphal entry. We call it Palm Sunday. Jesus is going through the city and the people are laying cloaks and palm branches in front of him. And they're worshiping him and they're praising him. And the religious leaders are having a fit. And Jesus gets out of the city and he looks upon the city and he weeps. Because he knows that if only they truly meant those praises, that they would truly have given their lives to him, they would find peace. But instead of peace, they'll find destruction. And then the second road we traveled was the road through the garden at Gethsemane. And it's a heartbreaking passage to read. We read and we see Jesus struggling and he's kneeling and praying before God and saying, God, it's possible for you to do all things. You can do everything. Anything that you want to do, you can do. So if it's at all possible, please let this cup pass from me. But let your will be done. And Jesus showed us in the garden, he showed us obedience to the Father's will because God knew what the plan was and Jesus knew what the plan was and why this had to happen and why this needed to take place. And he taught us obedience that no matter what, God, no matter what I'm getting ready to go through, let your will be done. And he taught us the importance of prayer. And he teaches it by reminding us about those who are with him, his inner circle. Could you not just stay up and pray? Pray, pray, pray so that you are not tempted. Pray so that sin does not get a hold of you. Pray that you would be able to do the right thing in this moment. Pray. And we need to do the same thing often. We need to pray when we feel tempted, when we feel weak, when we feel like the enemy is knocking, crouching at our door. We need to pray in all things. Pray. And that leads us to the road we're on this morning. And so many things have happened since that garden moment. Jesus was betrayed by Judas with a kiss and arrested by the Jewish leaders. Some of the Roman soldiers were there. He would go through these mock trials before the Sanhedrin, before the high priest, Annas and Caiaphas. Now, it's not recorded in the Bible, but the tradition is is that the Romans had disposed of Annas, told him you are no longer going to be high priest, and instead made Caiaphas the high priest. Caiaphas was the son-in-law of Annas and was high priest during Jesus' ministry, but Annas, the former high priest, still held significant sway and was really still considered to be high priest. Caiaphas was kind of a puppet, if you will. We'll see that Peter will deny Jesus three times. The other disciples will flee, and former disciple Judas will hang himself. And Jesus will stand trial before Pilate. And Mark Moore, in his commentary on the life of Christ, gives us a little detail on the struggle between Pilate and the Jews. 
he tells us that our ancient sources are even less flattering to Pilate than the Gospels. He was a self-seeking political opportunist who disdained the Jews. He was prefect of Palestine, which gave him absolute power of life and death. The only court higher would be Caesar, and appeal to the emperor was reserved for Roman citizens. Upon entering office, he wanted to flatter Emperor Tiberius by hanging shields in the temple compound, which had the emperor's picture on them. And the Jews were appalled, and when they arrived at Pilate's palace in Caesarea, several hundred strong, and asked him to remove the shields, not only did Pilate refuse, but he threatened to have them killed if they didn't leave. Far from being intimidated, the Jews laid on the ground and exposed their necks for slaughter. Fortunately, Pilate realized that such a massacre would end his political career, if not his life as well, and he granted the Jews' request. Later, Pilate wanted to build an aqueduct in Jerusalem. He confiscated money from the temple treasury for the project, and again, this infuriated the Jews to riots. But this time, Pilate refused to back down, and obviously, the emperor was well aware of these incidents and the tension between the Jews and Pilate. And to make matters worse, there were rumors floating around Rome that Pilate was an accomplice in some of the uprisings against the emperor. And now, these rumors were likely not true, but Pilate was nonetheless being carefully watched by Rome. All this resulted in undue leverage for the Sanhedrin to coerce Pilate into executing an innocent man. And so Pilate didn't like the Jews, and the Jews didn't like Pilate, and they use this, the Jews use this, knowing what's going on to coerce Pilate into executing Jesus. And before that, he will have Jesus flogged, but it's not going to be enough for the religious leaders. He'll receive the 39 lashes, 40 minus 1, to make sure they didn't go over 40. They would have used a whip, they would have used a cat of nine tails, shards of broken glass and bone that would penetrate the skin and when they pulled the whip back it would rip off the skin and we knew that in scripture this would be something that would take place Isaiah 53 5 tells us but he was pierced through for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities chastising for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed all that takes place between the garden and where we find ourselves this morning. And that leads us to our next road. And that road is the Via Dolorosa. And there's a picture up here, I think. Next slide, maybe. Somewhere in there, there's a picture of what that would look like. This road is literally the sorrowful way. And this was the pathway from the judgment seat of Pilate to Calvary. And that road, the Via Dolorosa, leads us this morning to where we will find Jesus at Calvary. And it is a sorrowful moment, but it's one of, like David said, a happy, sad moment. And to talk about where this road leads will be in John chapter 19, verse 16, and we'll look at some of the other Gospels as well. But we'll start in verses 16 through 18. And in verses 16 through 18... It tells us, So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. 
And so we see here that Jesus is going to carry his own cross. And in doing so, in Jesus carrying his own cross, it's fulfilling two Old Testament symbols. It's representative of when Isaac carried the wood in Genesis 22.6, which says Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife as the two of them went on together. Not only does it fulfill this Old Testament symbol, but it also fulfills this idea of the sin offering being taken outside of the city. Hebrews 13, 11 through 13 details this for us. It says, The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. And so he will carry his own cross. And today, many pictures, shows, movies that you see, they depict Jesus carrying the whole cross, this lowercase T-shaped cross, to his place of crucifixion. Now, this is not exactly what would have actually happened. People would have normally carried the patibulum, and the patibulum is the horizontal beam of the cross, that middle beam. It, the estimates vary, but it was said that this beam would weigh a minimum of 75 pounds. And some may think, well, 75 pounds, that's not that much. I mean, I could carry that. That wouldn't be an issue. But when you consider the degree of Jesus' injuries inflicted on him during his flogging, this would have been considerably difficult to bear. And this is why he would eventually need help. And we see in Mark 15, verse 21, a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, were passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. And so we would see a couple of people, if we were at this time in the city and we watched what was taking place, we'd notice a couple of people who would be around. The centurion who would be uh, in charge of the execution would be ahead of the victim. And an assistant to the centurion would walk beside carrying a placard with the crimes of the victim. It would be to let people know this is why he is being arrested and why he is being crucified. And this whole event of carrying a cross was done for a reason. The Romans wanted to make it as humiliating and shameful as they possibly could. They wanted everyone to see what was going to happen to you if you broke the rules. If you chose to go against what they wanted, if you chose to break the rules, you would face crucifixion, you would face this humiliation, you would face the shame. And so they would carry their cross to be an example of what will happen to you. And we see that he carries his cross out to the place of the skull, which is called Golgotha. Golgotha is Hebrew from the Latin translation. It's the place we get our word Calvary. Both Calvary and Golgotha both mean the place of the skull. And it's called place of the skull because the land looks like a giant skull, or at least at one point it did. There's two possible sites they believe are the locations for this. The first one is a place they call Gordon's Calvary. It would be outside the Damascus Gate on the north side of the city. It looks like a skull, but erosion is causing it to look, or the look to diminish. It would be outside the city walls, which would be important. There you go. 
This would be important that it would be outside the city because it follows scripture. Leviticus 24:14. take the blasphemer outside the camp. All who heard him are to lay their hands on his head and the entire assembly is to stone him. Acts 7, 57 through 58 says, At this they covered their ears and, yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of the young man named Saul. Another possible location for this is a site that is very near to a close, or very close and near to a church called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It is inside the current city, but in Jesus' day, it would have been outside of the city gate. Where it's located, it's not really a big deal. They're actually fairly close to one another, both these sites. What's important, though, is what happens next. We see it says that they crucified him. And all the Gospels just say they crucified him in some manner, fashion, or form. They don't go into detail. And the reason for this, as you know, is they understood fully well what crucifixion was. They didn't need to go into details. They didn't need to paint the picture because the people reading this would have known what it was. But just so that we could remember, I think we need to look at a little bit of the details. You see, it says that he carried his cross and he would be crucified. At this time, there were four different types of crosses that they would crucify somebody on. There was a cross that was shaped like an X, the crux de casada. There was the crux simplex. It was just simply a large stake that was in the ground. There was the crux commissa, which was the shape of a capital T, and there was the crux emissa, which was lowercase T-shaped cross that, we, fam- that are, we are familiar with that Jesus would have been hung on. He would have had nails driven through his wrist and his feet. Many times pictures depicted as though he would be crucified with the nail going through his hand. The problem with that is that it wouldn't really hold the weight of somebody on the cross. And so instead, rather than going through the palm, they would send a nail through the wrist. And in doing so, it would sever the median nerve. What is the median nerve? Well, the median nerve, it innervates many muscles of the anterior forearm and hand. It provides signals to and from the brain and spinal cord. To pierce this would cause searing pain through the arm and the shoulders. So not only would he have this nail driven through his wrist, but also through his feet. Searing pain throughout the body. And the question that people have asked is, how would the cross kill somebody? How could this be an instrument of death? Well, some believe that hanging on the cross would cause asphyxiation. The victim would be unable to exhale. Carbon dioxide would therefore build up in the lungs. The blood would become thick and sluggish. The pericardium, which is a thin sac that surrounds your heart, protects and lubricates your heart and keeps it in place within your chest, it would fill with serum that would cause intense pressure on the heart and lungs, which would cause chest pain. Finally, all strength would go, and as they have to try to pull themselves up and pull against the nail that would be in their wrist to breathe, they would not be able to exhale the carbon dioxide in their lungs, and they would die from asphyxiation. Others believe that it wasn't asphyxiations. Others believe that it was simply shock that would kill a person on the cross. 
the shock of having your body pierced and having your legs broken. Sometimes death would be slow on the cross, and so they would break the legs of the people on the cross to try and speed things up. They couldn't pull themselves up to breathe. But that pain would cause shock. It's possible in Jesus' case, with everything that he went through, with the flogging and the cross, the nail through the wrist and through the feet, it's possible that he went through shock, which caused a coronary failure. This is not to mention the possibility of infection. It wasn't impossible for wild animals to come up and try to feast on the people on the cross. Weather, thirst, constant agony, all of these things went in to the cross. And so he went to the cross and was crucified him. And there he was crucified with two other criminals. This fulfills what is written in Isaiah 53:12. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And so he is hanging on the cross with two people beside him. And then verse 19 through 22, we see Pilate had a note prepared and fastened it to the cross. I read Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the sign for the place where Jesus was crucified near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. So Pilate has Jesus, king of the Jews, inscribed on the placard, and he has it hung above the cross. And we see here that it was written in three different languages. Why would this be important that it was written in three different languages? Well, it's written, one, in Aramaic, which was the spoken language of Palestine at the time, Greek, which was the universal language of the day, and Latin, which was the official language of Rome. There's a lot of people going in and out of Rome. And so because of this, because of the different languages on this placard, people would be able to read, no matter what their language, they would be able to read and see who Jesus was. And this ticks off the Jews. Of course, the Jews, just these Jewish leaders, are just not happy. The religious Jewish leaders were just not happy. They were frustrated every time they tried to say anything about this man. They believe that this man is an imposter, and he will, they will not acknowledge this man as king in any sense. And so they say, please make this say that he claimed to be king of the Jews. They just refuse to acknowledge Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 5, 39 through 40. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Matthew 23, 37, Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. They just were not going to be willing to believe that Jesus was who he said he was. They refused to believe it, and they will continue until he dies to say that this man is not who he claims to be. That leads us to verse 23 through 24. It says, When the soldiers crucified Jesus... They took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one place from top to bottom. 
Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. And this happened so that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, so they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. So this is what the soldiers did. And so they take, or he's on the cross, they take up his clothes, they divide his clothes, his sandals, his headgear, his sash and cloak. Now some people say that it is possible at this time that when people were hung on the cross, they were stripped completely naked to add to humiliation and embarrassment. It doesn't tell us if that's the actual case, but it is possible that people at this time were hung on the cross completely naked so that people would, I mean, they would see and it would embarrass them, they would be humiliated. And so they take his clothes, they uh, put them out there, they divide them up, and then it says it comes time for the tunic. They decide to gamble for the tunic. Clothes at this time were all handmade, and so they were very valuable. And it's likely that this tunic was the most valuable piece, and so they're going to gamble to see who will get this tunic. And this fulfills Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. Again, fulfilled prophecy. Then 25 through 27, it says, Near the cross, Jesus stood, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. And so Jesus is on the cross. There's people around, but there's some other things before we get to who was standing here in John 19. There's other things that the other Gospels fill in that are important. In Matthew chapter 27, 39 through 43, it tells us, Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In Luke chapter, uh, chapter 23, 36 or 37, it tells us the soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. In Matthew 27, 44, it tells us in the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. And so it's not just these women at the cross, it's several people, and all of these people are collecting here to mock this man hanging on the cross. Passerbys are mocking him. The religious leaders are mocking him. The Roman soldiers are mocking him. The people on the crosses next to him are mocking him. Everybody around seems to be mocking this man. And then we see that present here is Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And Jesus looks at the disciple he loves, which is John, and tells John to take her in. And I've heard some people say, this is kind of a weird request. But you see, it's likely here that John was actually Jesus' cousin. It tells us this by looking here. It says that Mary and Mary's sister is here. In Mark fifteen forty, it tells us about a woman named Salome 
says some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph, and Salome. Salome, it tells us in Matthew twenty-seven fifty-six, is the mother of Zebedee's sons, James and John. It tells us among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's son. So it's a possibility, and many hold the tradition that John would have been Jesus' cousin, and that's why he's telling John, take her in. At this time, Joseph is passed on, and who is going to take care of Mary on the cross? He looks at his mother and is concerned. And John would take care of Mary after on this moment, her heart is pierced. This takes us back to Luke 2.35, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. And so we see them at the cross in verse 28 through 30. It tells us, Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. But when he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So there's some core details here from other gospels before we even get to John 19:28 and Mark 15:33 it tells us at noon darkness came over the whole land until 3 in the afternoon. Luke 23:45 tells us for the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. This fulfills what was prophesied in Amos chapter 8, verses 9 through 10, when it says, In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious festivals into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. And in Mark 15, 34, it tells us, And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This fulfills what was written in Psalm 22, 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? And we see here that Jesus is thirsty. He's been hanging on this cross, all the things that he's gone through now. He thirsts, understandably. And so he asks for something to drink, and they give him this white vinegar, wine vinegar. This fulfills what was written in Psalm 69, 21. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Mark Moore points out that this would have been a poor man's brew, this wine vinegar it would have been sour very sour but it would have been uh, a thing that could have helped temporarily quench thirst matthew says that it was a spear that the sponge was placed on john says it was a hyssop plant either way it shows us that the cross would have been low enough for the end to reach jesus lips and after he drinks he says it is finished Luke 23, 46 goes into details a little more than John. He says, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed his last. This fulfills what was written in Psalm 31, 5. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Deliver me, Lord, my faithful God. It is finished. There's a word for this phrase, it is finished. It's called to telestai. 
to telestai. And this word comes from the verb telo, which means to bring to an end, to complete, to accomplish. To telestai is in the perfect tense in Greek. That's significant because it shows that this is an action that has not just been completed in the past, but it will have results continuing into the present. And so really what tetelestai means is that it is finished, not just now is it is finished, but it is finished forever, for eternity. It has been completed. There is nothing left to do in this case. It has been fulfilled. It has been completed. It is accomplished. Then, now, forever. And what was finished? Jesus isn't finished. He's not finished. He will go to the cross. He will die. But three days later, he will raise from the grave. Jesus is not finished. So what is finished? His earthly task is finished. Hebrews 9.26, Otherwise Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews 10, 12 through 14 says, But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. By one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And so the Via Dolorosa takes us from the judgment seat of Pilate all the way to Calvary where he hangs on a cross Mocked by everybody around him, he hangs his head, gives up his spirit, it is finished. Again, he will die on that cross, but that is not the end of the story. He will raise from the grave three days later. And if I think there's any way to sum up this passage, I think Paul's words give us what we need to remember Through Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. These are the words that Paul speaks in Ephesians 1, 7. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And this statement is so true, is it not? Through the blood that has been shed, we have forgiveness of our sins. His blood has made us white as snow. His blood has cleansed us. Through his blood, we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. You see, in February, we started going through Genesis. And in Genesis, at the beginning, we see how sin enters into the world. And we see that sin takes hold of the world. And we see that God has a plan. He was going to send his son to be a sacrifice for us. God had a plan. And this morning, we see this plan begin. And it begins with him on the cross and it ends with his resurrection. You see, we knew our sin would require a sacrifice. There was no way around it. In order for our sins to be forgiven, it was going to require sacrifice. Hebrews 9.22 tells us, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was going to take a sacrifice. It was going to take the shedding of blood to cleanse us from our sin. And on that cross, Jesus shed his blood and he died for us. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. 
It required blood sacrifice, and Jesus shed his blood for us. And here's the thing that's so amazing about this. All of this, all of this is proof of God's love for us. That cross right there, what that represents, that's proof that God loves us so much that he would send his son to die for us. Jerry Bridges says it like this, if we want proof of God's love for us, then we must look first at the cross where God offered up his son as a sacrifice for our sins. Calvary is the one objective, absolute, irrefutable proof of God's love for us. There's no greater proof of God's love for us than that cross and what that cross represents. And Jesus died for us, and here's the truth. Too often we think that we're just not worthy. We're just not worthy of God's love. We're not worthy of what God has done for us on that cross. We're not worthy of any of that. We have so much sin, so much brokenness in our life. How could I possibly be forgiven for everything I've done? There's no way that I deserve that. Here's the thing. None of us deserve it. None of us deserve it. We all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. Each and every day we sin, we struggle, we fall short. None of us are worthy. But through the blood of Christ, we can find forgiveness in Jesus. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And as they do, as they come forward this morning, and we have fallen short, we have stumbled, we have made mistakes, and we think that we're unworthy. We think that there's no possible way that we can be forgiven. We think that we have just done way too much that God could actually love us that much. I love what John Piper says. John Piper says, The highest act of love is the giving of the best gift and, if necessary, at the greatest cost to the least deserving. That's what God did. At the loss of his son's life to the totally undeserving, God gave the best gift the display of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. He gave us the best gift. We who are so undeserving, we who are so unworthy, we who are so broken and flawed, we who are so messed up, each and every single day we stumble, we fall short of his glory, each and every day. And yet God says, I love you so much, so much, that I'm going to give you the best gift that you could ever receive. And it's going to be at the greatest cost. It's going to be at the greatest cost because that's what it requires to cleanse us of our sins. And that's exactly what he does on that cross, the blood that was shed for us. We are so totally undeserving, and yet God loves us so much to give us such an amazing gift. And maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, I am so unworthy, I am so undeserving. I don't deserve any grace, and yet God gives us the best gift and so this morning if you've never given your life to him if you've never received that gift what better time to do it he has given us this greatest gift forgiveness redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ we can find forgiveness of our sins and so maybe on your connect cards if you've never made the decision you can write it down I'd love to talk with you maybe you want to come up here and talk I'd love to talk with you Or maybe you're here this morning and you're like me and many others. 
We get so busy. We get so caught up in everything that's going around. We get so caught up in the, the busyness of life, the stress of life, all the things that are going around, and we just forget about how much God loves us. And we get so down and we get so discouraged and we let the things of this world beat us down and we forget the greatest gift that God has given to us and we take our focus and our minds off of him. And God loves us. God loves us so much that he would send his son for us. And so maybe you're here this morning and what you need to do is you just need to fall at the feet of Jesus and you just need to talk with him. You just need to pray and spend some time pouring out what's going on, laying these things at his feet. You could do that right where you're sitting. You could come pray with me. I'd love to pray with you. There's elders and not just the elders, your brothers and sisters around you I know would pray for you. Pray with you. God has given us the greatest gift, the best gift at the greatest cost to us, the least deserving, totally undeserving, yet he gave us the best gift. And so if you're here this morning and you've never received that gift or you just need to pray, please do so as we stand and we sing.